Break out your calendars, Utah Files, and circle November 6th, 2018, if for some reason you keep old calendars. Either way, the most recent midterms in the Beehive State constitute a milestone in Utah history. Three voter propositions went up on the ballot, and all three passed. That has never happened before. In 122 years that this state has been a state, only 23 initiatives have been put to a popular vote. Up until 2018, four had passed. Then comes the most recent midterms, and three go up, medical cannabis, Medicaid expansion, anti-gerrymandering, and all three pass. Nearly half of the total propositions that have been approved by Utah voters in more than a century occurred just in the last election. Besides 2018, there have been two other times when that many propositions were on the ballot, 1976 and 1988. In 76, just one of the three propositions passed. In 88, none of them did. So 2018 is a landmark year for what scholars call direct legislation, or direct democracy, having Utah voters pass Utah laws. At least, that's what these propositions are supposed to mean. In practice, you might be surprised to learn there are ways for the will of the voters to be interfered with, amended, or outright disregarded. Despite the huge success of 2018, none of those propositions are likely to become law. At least, not without significant meddling by the state legislature. In the words of one constituent, why even vote then? If politicians can just dismiss us like this, why even vote? That is a depressing and, frankly, dangerous sentiment in a country that boasts of the world's oldest continuing democracy, a country that, notwithstanding this badge of honor, struggles to turn out individual voters, especially in midterm elections. To erode the confidence of a voter is to erode democracy itself. So that's what this limited podcast series, Where in the World Are Those Utah Propositions, is about. Explaining what happened in the 2018 midterms, what's happened to those propositions since, and where we can go from here. As with so many questions of historical import, we can shine a better light on the present by turning back to the past. How did direct democracy come to the Beehive State? What does our track record with voter propositions tell us? Help, what is a proposition? Or an initiative? Or a referendum? What do those terms even mean in the state of Utah? I'm your host, J.P. Romney, in association with Alliance for a Better Utah, and this is Episode 1, The Best Things Come Quietly. So a proposition is a question that is put to the people that they get to vote on um, on their ballot. That's Katie Matheson, communications director at Alliance for a Better Utah, a nonprofit that works for political accountability and advocates for progressive policies in Utah. Now, an initiative is what you call it before it actually qualifies to get on the ballot. So it's like a it's like a 
two-part process. So first you have to qualify to get on the ballot, and that's the initiative process, and that's when we call it an initiative. And then once it qualifies with the signatures, then it gets a number and it is a ballot measure or a proposition. And if you're wondering what a referendum is... A referendum is like an inverse initiative. So with an initiative, you are proactively trying to put something on the ballot to create a law. And with a referendum, you're trying to get rid of a law. Let's take a look at these kinds of initiatives and referendum. Referendums. Referendi? It's referenda. Referenda. Initiatives and referenda made up what political activists of the 1890s called direct legislation, or DL for short. Quick history lesson here. In the U.S., the Progressive Era spanned a few decades from the 1890s to 1920. Americans, especially in larger cities, were looking around at the effects of widespread industrialization and political corruption, and were trying to change the course of the country. This was the era of the robber barons, and our democracy, underpinned by capitalism, was faltering, in their view. Something had to be done. It was during this time of unprecedented activism that old political machines and monopolies were torn down. Women's suffrage was successfully enshrined in the Constitution. Modernization was a rally cry, backed by rapid innovations in science and technology. Direct democracy became the gold standard of civic responsibility. The 17th Amendment, passed in 1913, actually changed the Constitution which had allowed senators to be chosen by state legislatures. The 17th Amendment ensured that just like other state representatives, senators had to be directly elected by the people. One of the crowning achievements of the Progressive Era was the passage of direct legislation amendments to a number of state constitutions. Many DL proponents saw the very fate of democracy resting on the outcome of these amendments. I believe that direct legislation should be pushed as rapidly as possible, wrote Sherman S. Smith, the Utah legislator most responsible for bringing the initiative and referendum movement to Utah in 1899. Through it only can I see the perpetuation, or rather the reestablishment of a democracy upon this continent. I asked Brian Cannon, chair of the history department at Brigham Young University, what Representative Smith meant by that. What was the significance of the direct legislation movement? The direct legislation movement of the 1890s grew out of concerns on the part of many Americans that legislators were unresponsive to their desires and that laws were being passed as a result of uh, deals that were brokered in uh, smoke-filled uh, back rooms. And so there was a sense that if we simply could uh, turn some of the lawmaking responsibilities over to the people and provide another avenue for passing laws that uh, the public interest would be advanced thereby. So this was a, a significant um, nationwide movement, and, and then that uh, movement was picked up by many progressive reformers who were better educated, wealthier, and better organized 
And uh, as a result of those campaigns in the turn of the century decades, a lot of states enacted uh, direct legislation provisions. For these 19th century reformers, direct democracy was the only true democracy, unblemished by corruption and cronyism. The organization most responsible for overseeing these reformers was the National Direct Legislation League, billing itself as a, quote, nonpartisan advocate of pure democracy. Congressman Smith, along with fellow Representative Henry W. Lawrence, stood against a tide of opposition in Utah that included the state legislature, the Mormon church, and the two major newspapers of the time, the Salt Lake Tribune and the Deseret News. Some of the reformers in Ogden had 5,000 of strong Dodgers printed, explaining the amendment, wrote Kate F. Hilliard, a Utah member of the Legislation League and grassroots activist. I prepared a paper and presented it in Salt Lake and spoke in the county and in Ogden whenever the Democrats gave me a chance, which was seldom. Election day, I was out all day armed with the documents. The press was strangely silent about it. The Deseret News, the organ of the Mormon church, came out in an editorial against it and warned the people to vote against it. But in spite of them all, it has carried. Utah would eventually succeed, but not every state would pass these direct legislation amendments. To date, only 24 of 50 states and the District of Columbia allow for this form of direct democracy in America. South Dakota was the first to adopt the initiative system in 1898, followed the next year by Utah in 1899. The last state was Missouri, almost a century later in 1992. States that don't allow direct democracy initiatives? Texas, New York, Pennsylvania, the birthplace of American democracy, neither of the Carolinas or the Virginias, most of the Deep South, Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, Tennessee, Kentucky. I asked Professor Cannon why that is. Simply put, he said it runs counter to the Constitution. See, we're a representative republic. We elect leaders who are then supposed to legislate on our behalf, create our laws. That's how the system was set up. It was, it was a radical idea. It flew in the face of the more conservative approach that the Founding Fathers had taken. And uh, there also uh, was, and, and still is in some circles, a, a sense that the Founding Fathers were either divinely inspired or were gifted with extraordinary intelligence and insight, and that uh, to um, play, play loose and fast with the Constitution would be, would be unwise. Uh, there were fears that this would lead to mob rule. And, um, you know, people pointed to, you know, the French Revolution as an extreme example of what happens when the people rule, when the majority rules. So a lot of states, uh, balked at, at this trend. And, uh, particularly, uh, the eastern states tended to be more conservative in those, uh, political matters. The western states, there was, um, Things were more free-floating in the West. Uh, the society was newer here, and the states in the West tended to be more open to these types of uh, new uh, experimental ideas. I asked the same question of Adam Brown, associate professor of political science at Brigham Young University. He disputed that even half the states in the Union have a workable system of direct legislation. So if you're counting up states that have some kind of initiative process, yeah, you get to almost half the states. If you're counting up states that actually have a regularly used initiative process because it's actually a workable process in terms of the signature requirements and the amount of time to circulate the petition 
and the odds that your initiative will remain the law going forward, now you're down to just a handful of states. Now you're talking California, Oregon, Colorado, and a couple others that are behind them on initiative use. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily go all the way to say it's almost half the states have it, because a lot of them look a lot like Utah in terms of how it's used, where only occasionally does one qualify. Professor Brown also brought up the point that amending a state constitution so that ballot initiatives and referenda are allowed is not an easy feat, for a pretty obvious reason. Not all states did it, not because people don't want to have it, because it's hard to amend your state constitution that fundamentally and get it in. Most state constitutions, once they're in place, they're only going to be amended by initiative that's been proposed by the legislature and sent to the voters for ratification. And uh, legislators aren't usually eager to give that power away. But at the same time, majority voters, the Republican majority voters in this state, know, know that this doesn't usually benefit them. That's why it's hard. You've got to be writing at a time when the, when the people writing the Constitution really think this is something they want to do and when, it doesn't, when they don't think too much about how it might get used in a partisan way. Because I must be honest, this is a tool that you can use if you have a slim, democratic, independent, and moderate Republican majority working against a Republican supermajority. Direct legislation enjoyed pretty widespread support among your average Utah voters in the late 1890s, especially among the populists, who Professor Cannon describes as... Radical country bumpkin types, a little rough around the edges. Notwithstanding the electorate's bumpkinness, had it not been for grassroots reformers like Kate Hilliard and populist legislators like Sherman Smith and Henry Lawrence, direct legislation likely wouldn't have passed in Utah either. In fact, if Representative Smith is to be believed, the entire initiative movement in Utah rested upon a single favor he did for a fellow senator. The amendment was killed five times before I finally got it through on the last day of the session. The amendment passed the House about two weeks before the end of the session. It was then killed twice in the Senate. On the last day, by doing a favor in the House for a senator, I succeeded in getting him to move to recall my amendment from the House and to place it on its passage, and to request that I, a member of the House, be granted the privilege of addressing the Senate on the measure. I spoke 30 minutes. Not a word from a senator was spoken for or against that measure. The measure received exactly the requisite number in each house. I was surprised when it passed the House, and again when it passed the Senate. So I have, I have no idea what that uh, quid pro quo would have been, uh, but uh, I, my, my suspicion is that I'll do this for you and help move your bill forward if you'll do this for me and help move my bill forward. The direct legislation record, official publication of the National Direct Legislation League, credited Congressman Smith, aged 35, a farmer's son, as the lone populist distinguished for his persistent energy in the cause of DL. It was, after all, Smith who introduced the amendment written by the League that so narrowly passed the Utah State Legislature. But perhaps equally instrumental was fellow Utah Congressman Henry Lawrence, an Illinois native 30 years Smith's elder. Lawrence had at one time been a Republican, but when that party drifted away from its moorings, he left it and became a populist. Representative Lawrence saw his former party as a chief obstacle to the will of the people of Utah, 
I wonder if you would look at the situation today any differently. To my surprise, the people voted to adopt the amendment, although the Tribune, Gentile paper, and Deseret News, Mormon, opposed it. And in fact, the Democrats in the campaign did not have much to say in favor of direct legislation. I scattered considerable literature through the state in favor of the amendment, and wherever I spoke, did my best to impress upon the people the advantages of the principle. The great trouble now will be to get the legislature to adapt legislation to put direct legislation into operation and make it effective, as our legislature will be Republican and no doubt generally opposed to the principle. Uh, Henry Lawrence was um, a Latter-day Saint, but had a falling out with Brigham Young over his economic policies and became one of the founders of the Salt Lake Tribune and became also a vigorous uh, proponent of political independence. Sherman Smith um, had been involved in the Liberal Party in Utah, which was the party that opposed um, the Mormons. So he came to Utah from uh, somewhere in the east, I think it was Ohio, and became involved in trying to carve out a domain for people who didn't agree with the Mormon church on political issues. And so uh, they're, they're part of this long-standing movement, decades-old movement, fighting for um, the liberty of the people against the interests. And in Utah politics, the biggest interest of all was the LDS church which had, you know, vast commercial holdings and commanded the allegiance of over half of the population in religious matters. And uh, it wasn't so much that Smith was concerned whether people believed in Mormonism or not, but he believed that they should be totally free at the ballot box to be able to cast their, their ballots without any influence from, from the church. In June of 1899, the state legislature agreed to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot that would allow Utahns to propose and then vote on their own laws. In the House, 19 Democrats voted aye, along with seven Republicans, one populist, and three fusionists. Total side note here, a fusionist in the 19th century was a politician who was part Republican, part populist, part Democrat— it was a fusion or cooperation of these parties that was meant to challenge the ironclad grasp Democrats had over state politics. So some strategists said, if we could fuse with the Democratic Party and get them to embrace some of our ideas, we would stand a chance of capturing the White House and electing more individuals on a national level and on a state level. That's what happened in 1896. The Democrats didn't capture the White House William Jennings Bryan was their candidate. He, he spoke for the values of the common people, really, and portrayed himself as a reformer against the moneyed interest. And uh, he was, he, he made a strong bid for the White House, but ultimately lost. Anyway, the measure passes the Utah House, goes to the Senate, and passes there with 11 Democrats and one fusionist voting in the affirmative. <laughs> The November 6, 1900 popular election brings the announcement, Utah is the second state to adopt direct legislation. Its people adopted a DL constitutional amendment by a large majority, despite the opposition of the Republican Party, the Mormon Church, the newspapers, and the indifference of the Democratic Party. 
Reading the wording of the amendment shows an impressive shift in how people envisioned self-governance. Let it be known that Section 1 of the Constitution of the State of Utah be amended to read as follows. The legislative power of the state shall be vested, one, in the Senate and House of Representatives, which shall be designated the legislature of the state of Utah, two, in the people of the state of Utah, as herein stated. This is an epic transfer of power to the, quote, people of the state of Utah. Now the people could, quote, initiate any legislation and cause the same to be submitted to a vote for approval or rejection. It also created a potent check and balance on the state legislature because any law passed by the legislature could be submitted to the voters of the state before such law shall take effect. Thus, any law passed by politicians would henceforth read, be it enacted by the legislature of the state of Utah. But laws passed by voters would read, be it enacted by the people of the state of Utah. That sounds like democracy, doesn't it? It smacks of protecting the will of voters, elevating us to the level of politicians. We become the watchers on the wall, initiating laws we favor, blocking those we don't. In other words, pure democracy. Well, turns out that wall is more sticks and straw than brick and mortar. Even from the moment of passage, the 1900 Amendment carried conditions. Voters couldn't override the legislature if two-thirds of its members approved a measure. The amendment failed to designate how many voters needed to sign a petition for a law to go on the ballot, meaning it might technically require a petition to be signed by every voter, something that would make it impossible for anything to pass. There's also significant wiggle room for the legislature to amend, stall, or outright overturn these voter laws. This shouldn't come as a surprise to any observer of politics. Organizations with power are usually loath to give up any portion of it. For almost two decades after the amendment passed, nothing happened. No initiatives, no referenda, no be it enacted by the people of Utah, no direct democracy. Why? That has to do with uh, robust opposition on the part of uh, commercial interests, on the part of the LDS Church also, uh, with their view that the Constitution was inspired and their concern about giving too much power to the um, common people. Um, this was an issue that was debated in the Church's General Conference in 1912, so it rose to that level with the prophet uh, publicly rebuking a lower-level general authority who spoke out in favor of uh, direct legislation. And uh, so, so there was a lot of opposition and concern that this was going too far. But finally in 1916, advocates organized the Popular Government League of Utah in order to drag the legislature kicking and screaming into implementing the amendment, which they did with the mulish caveat that anyone signing a voter petition had to do so, quote, in the office and in the presence of an officer competent to administer oaths. Now, anyone who was canvassed for a proposition, or circulated a petition, or tried to get people to sign up for a bake sale, instantly understands what this means. It's hard enough to get people to put their name to something when it's presented to them at their front door, let alone convince them to drive down to meet with a 
competent officer of the government, which, depending on your personal views, may be about as likely to exist as Sasquatch or the Loch Ness Monster, then stand in line for an undetermined length of time to sign their name to a law that may or may not even be voted on. Ain't gonna happen. The folks at the Popular Government League were none too happy, and eventually the petition requirement was dropped. Notwithstanding, a proposition still wouldn't go up on a Utah ballot until 1942, almost a half century after we citizens were technically allowed to make our own laws. That proposition, a chain store tax raising the taxes on anyone owning two or more retail stores, was promptly defeated. The chain store tax was something that local independent merchants strongly favored. They were concerned that chain stores like Woolworths were coming in and were sapping the trade of local businesses. It's similar to concerns that we've heard in the last 20 years about Walmart coming in and undermining locally owned businesses. It failed for the same reason that consumers go to Walmart today. You might have philosophical concerns about um, driving out locally owned businesses, but if you're running out of money toward the end of the month and you need clothes for the kids for school, you're going to get them where it's cheapest. And so those consumer uh, values predominated. Prior to the first win for a ballot initiative in Utah, which wouldn't occur until 1960, Utahns had tried to raise taxes on chain stores, 1942. They tried to pass welfare reform, 1952. They tried to establish legal horse racing overseen by a statewide racing commission in 1958 and then again in 1992. All of them failed. What has passed in Utah in a hundred years? Where have the voices of Utahns become law in this state? Bear with me here. The list ain't long. 1960. This was our first win. What was the issue? Should there be a merit system for the qualification, employment, and tenure of deputy sheriffs? Passed. 1976. Should Utahns prevent the government from adding fluoride to the water supply? Much to the chagrin of dentists, no doubt. Passed. 2000. Should English be the official language of Utah? In hindsight, a clearly racist policy, but passed. And also in 2000, should the government need to meet common sense standards to seize your property under accusations that it was connected to a crime? That also passed. I asked Professor Cannon what he thought the most memorable or absurd voter proposition was. Well, in my opinion, ironically, it's one of them that passed that was one of the more absurd ones, and that was the English as the state language bill. So um, I just see that as, as, a, as a huge mistake, sending the wrong message um, to many of the residents in our community. And uh, it doesn't make sense in the public schools. Uh, my wife works in the public schools and has taught there for a long time. I've volunteered for years there. So many of her students speak English as a second language. And we just want to be welcoming and encouraging and try to communicate with parents. And that, that law hampers the ability of public entities to, to, to do that. So it makes no sense to me, even though it made sense to the majority of Utah voters at the time. Could you give just like a quick rundown what that uh, initiative was? So it established English as the official language for the state and required that um, the state conduct its business in English, that um, public entities communicate in English, and that 
uh, it restricted the uses of taxpayer funds for any literature that's printed in a language other than, than English. And what, what was the context for that? Why, why would that have been such a concern that it went up on a ballot initiative and then succeeded? The, the context was that uh, Utah was becoming more diverse, as were the surrounding states. And so uh, people were concerned that former generations of immigrants had learned English, and they were concerned that they didn't think that was happening for Hispanic immigrants particularly. Um, they're, they're very similar to the concerns that existed back in the late 19-teens after World War I and early 1920s. In that case, it was Greek and Italian immigrants and um, you know, states passed laws requiring the immigrants to go to Americanization classes and English classes. So they're, they're very, they're very similar types of concerns as a sense that the old stock Americans are losing their, their power and their sense of comfort in society, that they're having to make accommodations and that it's the immigrants who have to make the accommodations if they're going to be here. So that's what we'd done with our direct democracy in the hundred years between 1900 and the year 2000. Deputy sheriffs need to be properly qualified, no fluoride for Utah teeth, don't take my property without due process, and speak English, damn it. Then comes 2018, and progressivism throws a hippie gut punch to the legislature with medical cannabis, Medicaid expansion for low-income Utahns, and slamming the brakes on gerrymandering. Three propositions go up, all three pass. The headline for 2019 in Utah should have been, Mission Accomplished! We did it! It's been like a hundred years, but whatever. Be it enacted by the people of the state of Utah that we can pass our own rack and fracking laws. But spoiler alert, that wasn't really our headline. A more proper phrasing would be, be it enacted by the people of the state of Utah, then promptly kicked to the curb by the legislature of the state of Utah the following non-laws that we all voted to pass. In the next episode, we'll look at those ballot initiatives, props 2, 3, and 4, and why they passed. What made 2018 different than any other year in Utah history? In the episode following that, we'll look at how the legislature has reacted to these laws, which they clearly didn't want to see passed. And lest you be left with a bad taste in your mouth for our democratic process, one that has somehow endured two and a half centuries of human folly and personal ambition, I'll leave you with a quote from the 1899 direct legislation record at a time when passage of pure democracy, as it were, was not a sure thing. The best things come quietly. The editor states, Utah accomplishes direct legislation, and not a single reform paper takes notice of it. The thing is done, done quietly, and done by the people. The people, the average common people, when they have a matter to vote on, usually vote right. I'm J.P. Romney. In association with Alliance for a Better Utah, you've been listening to the limited documentary series, Where in the World Are Those Utah Propositions? Join me next time for Episode 2, The Impossible Midterms. Special thanks to Cody Hale of Hale Center Theater in Orem for voicing H.W. Lawrence, David Smith for voicing Sherman S. Smith, and Kelly Coombs for voicing Kate Hilliard.